0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Hey there. Before we get to the show, I've got one favor to ask. Do not worry. It does not cost you a cent. My employers just want to know a bit more about you so we can figure out how to make stuff you like and how to tell advertisers just how desirable you are. To tell us how smart, attractive, and affluent you are, please go to the link in the show notes or directly to vox.com slash podsurvey. Thanks. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm in studio today with Ryan Broderick, who runs Garbage Dave. It's an awesome internet culture newsletter. You should be reading it right now. I'm so psyched he joined us because it turns out there's some news in the internet today. That's right.
2: We well, have a lot to talk about. Ryan
1: is someone that I have come to rely on to sort of explain how the internet work, really how socials work, obviously Twitter. We're going to spend a ton of time talking about that. But Facebook and stuff that I'm not spending a lot of time watching like Tumblr. Ryan, Ryan spends a lot of time on Tumblr. I he do. is wearing a Tumblr shirt <laughs> right now.
2: I am. You can't buy this one. I got this one... Uh through other channels
1: so we will talk about Tumblr and I have a couple of be real questions for you but Twitter's in the news so we should talk about Twitter we're recording this on Monday morning so by the time you listen to this it's possible that Elon Musk will have sold uh, Twitter or shut it down or force everyone who uses Twitter to speak French who knows but we're gonna assume that it'll still be intact and so we can talk about sort of broadly, what has been happening. I was just going through all your your recent posts and so many of them are are quotable. You've got one that I love here describing Elon Musk having the cultural understanding of a 12-year-old boy who just saw a South Park episode for the first time. That was probably a couple weeks ago that you wrote that.
2: Yeah, it all blurs together now. I'm running out of one-liners for him. Uh, But I also think, you know, it's a pivotal moment in every young boy's life to see Cartman for the first time, so.
1: It does have, I mean, he had a Monty Python link. I mean, it's one of the things about Elon that is confounding for me. There's a lot about him that I recognize either in myself or other internet nerds. Not that we're all the world's richest man and build big important companies, but like kind of get where his brain is at in some parts. And then there's just parts where I'm like, I'm very confused. We can talk about all that. But before we get into what Elon is doing to Twitter and what might happen next, I'd just like you to explain why Twitter is important and, and also sort of situate it. For us in its importance, I've been spending time in Slacks and on posts saying, you guys, we're, we're kind of overinflating Twitter's importance. The people who are on Twitter, journalists, coworkers, we make too much of Twitter. My kids have zero interest in it. It's it's a small network. But you spend a lot of time thinking about it. So tell us why it's important and, and how important it is.
2: Yeah, I've never had a, a, a great relationship with it. Uh, I think it's really overstated in how important it is. But at the same time you can't deny its impact on the media in particular and culture. And I think for the last decade to 15 years, we've lived in sort of a Twitter trickle-down world. So you have, let's say, 30% of the population, maybe less, using it, but that 30% or less is extremely influential. And I think most importantly for media around the world, not just America, if you need to go write something on the Internet or make a movie or figure out how people are talking or thinking – there's only really one platform that lets you search the entirety of it. Uh, all the rest don't. This is interesting because you, you bring so you bring up search
1: a lot and about why search is important. And, and you talk about social. Why is – that's something I never think about when it comes to social. Search is something you do when you go to Google, although Google is getting less and less good. And I never think really to search for something on Twitter. You talk about it all the time. Why is it important to
2: I think it's useful because there really isn't a way to figure out how people are talking or thinking. And it's become so a part of our lives that we don't even think about it so much anymore because let's say something horrible happens outside right now. There's a good chance you're probably going to pull up your Twitter app and you're going to type in the address or try to figure out the hashtag you might be using to coordinate. And I will, but
1: I'm a sick Twitter user, right? Sure. I mean, it's i'm a, I'm a minority of Twitter users who's on the app all the time. I'm full of self-loathing. I'm in the media, so I get that sort of there's some trickle down from how I but I don't think a normal Twitter user does that, do they?
2: I don't think so. I think they're bombarded with people who are, though. And I think that the people with the largest followings in the very beginning were celebrities. They were journalists. They were TV hosts. They do that. So there's this giant umbrella that we're all sort of living under, and that umbrella is Twitter content. Whether you're getting it through search, whether you're getting it through an article aggregating it. I mean the, to the point where the whole strategy for the uh, the Russian Internet Research Agency for a long time was writing unhinged tweets that could be embedded in posts.
1: But also dropping in Facebook, right? I mean that's most people or many more people are using Facebook. I mean of that course. number's shrinking. Why is Twitter so outsized in importance for people like me who are on it?
2: I think another reason why it's important is if you think about Facebook, you think about Instagram, you are receiving content according to an algorithm that's based on who you follow, what you like, what you look at, where other than a few parts of Twitter, which are which are algorithmic, most of it is chronological. You're still seeing stuff from people you follow. It's breaking down right now, but that's Mm -hmm. the idea. And that. Also tends to be very powerful because it creates uh, spontaneity that doesn't usually happen on Facebook. I think there's a a much higher probability that you're going to learn about, let's say, the Iranian protests right now on Twitter than you are in a community group for your hometown on Facebook. So here's another way
1: uh, that I'm stumped thinking about it. So there's me and a bunch of other hyper media literate Twitter users on the older side of the internet using spectrum so we can come back to the fact that again my kids are 12 and 14 and have zero interest in in twitter and probably never will so we're deeply immersed in it but we're still a a micro fraction of internet users even people who are on twitter has 300 million users right most of them are not on all the time at all very few of them are posting Um, how does the fact that we're on it all the time translate into broader effects on the internet, in in the actual real world, there's you know one of the things we always hear is Twitter is not real life. So yes, the people on Twitter are outraged about this. That it has nothing. It doesn't reflect reality in any way. And I tend to believe that. So
2: what am I missing? To a degree, if you think about all the different platforms of the internet, Reddit, Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, TikTok, especially, there's all this activity happening there. And there really isn't uh, an easy way to get a consensus on what's big on TikTok, other than using their own metrics, which aren't great. But if you have, let's say the editors and writers of the largest publications in a country on one website, but also looking at other websites, it has at least for the last seven to ten years functioned as sort of a public Slack room. It's a way to create consensus on the internet, which is an illusion probably, in the same way that all pop culture is kind of an illusion, or at least like a fever dream that we all agree on. I think that for a long time, Twitter has functioned as what I call the front page of the internet. And I take that term from Reddit, which used to call itself that. And over the years, there have been different front pages of the internet. I think for a very brief time, the front page literally of YouTube felt like the center of the world. Meaning
1: when you come look at this thing, we are telling you the most important things in the world. Yes. And in this case, it's we collectively are Twitter yes. as opposed to the editor of the New York Times. Another way of saying what you're saying, I think people talk about is uh, Twitter being the assignment uh, editor yes. for newsrooms around the world. They're like, this is on Twitter. Right. We pay attention to Twitter. This seems like something we should follow. Again, there's lots of downside to that, but that's what happens.
2: Huge downsides. I mean, consolidating all of culture and media and politics into one space is a bad idea. But we tend to want that. I mean, ever since the very first portals with AOL homepage, we've wanted a central place to log in and look at stuff. And then we get bored and we move around. And I think the reason why it was so attractive for someone like Elon Musk is because you can point at it and be like, all right, that's the internet. And I don't have to think about the rest. I can think about all the people on Twitter who will tell me about the rest. And that's very powerful.
1: You were tackling this question this morning, not not because you were doing work for me, but it's what you think about. Um, and one of the things you brought up is, look, it's text-based and that's really important. And from a business perspective, the fact that, Twitter is text based, even though it has tried to move from that, right? They tried to buy Instagram. They basically created TikTok. It was called Vine and moved off from it. It's text based. Normally when you are assessing Twitter's value, you go, yeah, it's, it's – they're stubbornly text-based and that's a problem for them because most people want to look at pictures and they want to watch videos. So why is text important to Twitter or why is that an advantage for them?
2: So I, I travel a lot both for work and because I like to travel and I also I, – uh, I spend a lot of time uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil where my girlfriend lives. And when I travel, I have a phone plan that usually puts me at 2G, 3G maybe if I'm lucky. But that's also – Pretty similar to how a lot of the world uses and experiences the internet. The
1: always-on broadband that we're used to in much of America doesn't exist lots of other parts of the
2: world. Right. And if you've ever tried to use social media on a 2G connection, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. You basically have the option of Googling something but not being able to click into it. So you've got to read the information through the results itself, WhatsApp, and Twitter. The Facebook app for all of the free basic stuff that Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about for years, doesn't actually work that well. Instagram doesn't work that well. But because Twitter is still largely text, and even if there's an image in there and it doesn't load, you can pretty much get the experience. Like you're like, oh, okay, I know what you're it's probably like a picture of like a pig with poop on its balls or something. I got it. Yeah. So if you take that away, all of a sudden you've lost something very vital. And I think that in America in particular, we like to associate it with, columnists bored after lunch fighting with each other. But if you go outside of America, I mean, we're so far removed from the Arab Spring that we don't even talk about it right now with regards to Elon Musk and Twitter, Mm -hmm. which is crazy because we've just sort of – we've assumed that it's part of the world now.
1: Well, I think about it all the time and I – not all the time, but I I certainly – when I've been writing the last couple months about Twitter, I'll say this was important. This was certainly the way that people – in and around Twitter, we're thinking about its importance. Again, to remind people this is 2010, 2011, where uh, dissidents across the Arab world are using social media. Not just Twitter, but Facebook as well. And there were a lot of us saying, oh, this is – they're using the internet for good. This is great. Similarly, um, I always think about the fact that there was a Pakistani engineer a couple miles outside of Osama bin Laden's compound who was essentially live tweeting the raid there. Accidentally, he didn't know what he was doing. And and this was all part of like the thinking around social media being this is an unalloyed good or it's a mostly alloyed good for the world – and, and people are going to use it to do good things. And now you see lots of – I think now the conventional wisdom is, well, oh, we were all wrong. That there's some good that comes out of it but there's a lot, a lot of stuff bad and, and we, were, we were overestimating how valuable it was. I was watching a former Twitter person this weekend who was tweeting angrily about what was going on. And she's like, by the way, I wrote a book about – I've written a couple books about Twitter. Don't ignore the first one because I wrote that one when we were all hopped up on Arab Spring. So that's my long answer to that.
2: And I agree with you. I think that for every good thing, almost every good thing that Twitter has done, there's an equal and opposite bad. At the same time, though, you know... We could talk about Black Lives Matter as a recent example, a more recent one, and one you know we could talk about the uh, the the protests in 2020 in the, in the summer where I'm in my apartment but I'm using Twitter to watch what's happening in places I can't be, whether because of safety or because of distance.
1: George Floyd's murder was captured
2: on Facebook.
1: Sure, right. I mean, there are. That's yes. the thing I keep thinking about. There's if if Twitter disappeared today, it would suck for a lot of people, but the internet wouldn't turn off.
2: I know I, I agree with you. And in fact, in a lot of ways I the anarchist in me wants to see it go. I want to see what happens when Twitter leaves. But at the same time, the more that I've sat watching Elon Musk sort of like burn it down, the more I'm beginning to think like, "Oh, without Twitter, would if this happened, would this have happened?" And I think the answer is probably yes. I think I think like there's an alternate reality where Twitter never exists and ever the last 15 years are largely the same. But I don't want to write off Twitter's utility for different kinds of experiences because i th- i think that especially in twitter in america we tend to forget that there's twitter's in other countries that are f- running all kinds of other different roles there so we're
1: going to talk about what you know everything that elon musk has done with twitter since announcing he was going to buy it and then deciding he didn't want to buy it obviously it's he's it's a failure to yeah. date but prior to that his impulse to say this thing is really important i love using it I want to own it and I want to make it better. Is that rational? If, if Assuming that he has the resources to do it. He's the world's richest man, so he should. Is that Does that impulse make sense to you?
2: I think it does. And I think I think that impulse would happen if we weren't talking about Twitter. If we were talking about – if Elon Musk was like Pinterest should be the app that takes us to space. I think that there's always going to be the big app, whether it's because of size or influence. And there's going to be someone like Elon Musk who sees – how they could use it for either selfish gains or, uh, you know, good ones. Let's let's imagine that Elon Musk is operating in completely good faith. And he really thinks that Twitter could be the thing we use to connect our spaceships 100 years from now. I think that is very important to remember going forward now, because any app that gets to that size, there will be someone who thinks that. And there's a good possibility that eventually one of these apps will be that. We've We've sort of We're sort of like hilariously dancing towards this precipice where we're eventually going to have to decide, is there a world app and how does that work? And and throughout all of the memes and the 420 jokes and the Dogecoin nonsense, I, I think that concept is so heavy to think about that we're kind of ignoring it. We're kind of ignoring that like this guy wants to connect the whole planet.
1: Right. I mean, the countervailing thing is that we seems like we're moving more and more towards a balkanized internet, where yes. China is going to exist entirely independent from the rest of the internet. We've seen Russia get cut off. Any any country can it's essentially remove itself from the internet now, and so we won't have one. It seems very unlikely we're going to have one anything. Right. But I I, st- I still take your point. So. Clearly, let's we can just move past Elon Musk <laughs> deciding he wanted to pay forty-four billion dollars for it, and then deciding he didn't want to. And so that's that's all of record, right? We yeah. don't have, he, clearly he fucked that up. He didn't he didn't want to pay that much. He's paid too much. He's got too much debt. All that said, I'm and I didn't think it was going to be successful when he took it over. But I'm shocked at like you said he, he he looks like he's intentionally trying to burn it down. What do you what do you make of the overall Elon-ness over the last couple weeks.
2: Yeah. Uh, my Twitter mentions, my comment section on my newsletter are full of people being like, it can't be possible that this is an accident. Putin is paying him to destroy Twitter for the, you know. Or he's, I, the, the, My people in my newsroom wonder if
1: he's intentionally destroying it because journalists like it and he wants to deprive us of a tool. It seems crazy, but
2: what he's doing also seems crazy. It does. Uh, my central philosophy in life is that actually the world is a lot dumber and more random than than we want it to be. And that's very frightening to think about, but also pretty funny, uh, if you can think about it objectively. And I I sort of think it is easier to believe that he is a deeply egotistical person surrounded by people who say yes to him because he literally, as we've seen on Twitter, publicly fires people who disagree with him. That happened this morning. Literally about. this morning. Yeah. And so... I think it is more believable that – To be so-
1: fair, it was an employee calling out his CEO on on Twitter saying you're wrong. I mean there aren't a lot of places you can get away with that.
2: Sure. I, I do think Twitter live tweeting its own destruction is perfect and awesome. To answer your point, basically, like, I just think it is more believable that Elon Musk has no one around him who can tell him that he's doing a bad job versus that he is part of some sort of conspiracy with like – Peter Thiel's PayPal mafia or Putin to like destroy the last free information source on the internet. I I think that's more believable, but who knows?
1: I mean, to me, it looks like there's a couple components. One is he has just great disdain for the people who work at Twitter when people are talking about the way he's doing these layoffs and they're capricious and he's fired half the staff and insisting that – is that he doesn't want – he thinks basically anyone who works at Twitter – shouldn't be working there. That ideally Twitter would be run by a couple hundred Tesla quality engineers that he brings in. That's where he's moving toward. So I I get that. I mean, it seems like a terrible mistake, but I get it. I get him now a little bit not understand having any idea how to interact with advertisers, although I'm still surprised because Elon can be professionally charming. And so I'm shocked that he's hasn't figured out how to just say the right things and then be less of an asshole on, on Twitter. The the thing that is the smallest thing, but to me the most telling, is a tweet he it was a reply he put up this weekend in his mentions, saying that Twitter is the, you know, most important internet source in the world. Fine. Biggest driver oh, of click-throughs yeah. on the internet.
2: And <laughs> Sorry. As someone has worked in digital media for most of my yes. life, it's such a ridiculous thing Well, that's,
1: that's the one that really gave me pause because, like, we all dunked on him because, like, well, this is just an objectively wrong thing. Like, when you're talking about moving people to Mars, like, I don't know. Maybe you are. I, I, I can't – you know, I don't know how to build a car. But I understand how traffic works on the internet. Everyone does. And the thing that made me just sort of – I'm a deeply cynical person. I was like – Wait, is it possible that he has believed this the entire time and this is part of his thinking that he was buying this thing that like was the most important traffic generator on the internet when it's demonstrably not true and no one has ever told him in the last six months that's the case? I mean – it's not even a question. That's just my rant. But I mean, did, did that
2: strike you? One single radio station's Facebook from Iowa can drive more traffic than all of Twitter. <laughs> like, like if you get a random post shared by like WKX the Eagle yep. in Minneapolis, like they are going to give more, you more readers than the biggest Twitter influencer. It's just, it is. You're right. It is objectively. If his not gestalt
1: true. is like this, is the
2: assignment desk for the? But that's not what he was saying. No. So there is like a version of this. Which we saw with Trump, where he was surrounded by people that stuck around. They didn't fire, which means they were lying to him. And he believed his own sort of conspiracy theories. And, you know, there's all kinds of examples of Trump investigating stuff that is clearly not real. And a lot of people just not being able to tell him that's not real. And the fact that, like, we're now seeing in public Elon Musk fire people who are like, you're, you're not right. Makes me believe that like maybe there is a world where he he and a bunch of other Silicon Valley guys spent way too much time at dinner parties over the last two years, particularly during COVID maybe, obsessing over Twitter and just came to believe that like their value of it was the same for everyone.
1: What about the argument – and I, there's people that I talk to who – again, we um, need to sort of remind people that Elon Musk up until this year, widely beloved by Silicon Valley people – Broadly, anyone who knew about him thought he seemed cool, rich guy made cool cars and that's about all in Silicon Valley people really really admired him um, even people who might disagree about whatever they think look he built these two companies he's doing real science he's a technologist uh, especially when you're in like the social media sphere like everyone's like a little embarrassed because they're doing photo filters and you know he's sending rockets and right. landing them lots of people I talk to who run companies or engineers or work with engineers go you know he's probably right that like you could run Twitter a lot better that you could probably do with half the headcount. You know, they weren't saying be an asshole. Right. But they're largely sympathetic to the idea that, like, you you could attack Twitter as an engineering problem. Again, on Twitter this weekend, he said, this is a servers and software company. And I think a lot of people agree with him. And then everyone who's in social media says, no, no, you don't understand. It's much more nuanced and difficult. That sounds like they're just defensively explaining why they're bad at their job. So... Can you make the case about why it's not a software and servers problem?
2: Yeah, sort of. I mean, I will say, like, we don't have a lot of history when it comes to social media. But we do have enough now in the last couple – like, we have enough distance from, like, the the MySpace something awful 4chan Mm -hmm. era that we can actually – we can kind of look at, like, what happens when stuff like this happens, right? And I think a really useful one is probably Dig versus Reddit. So the the migration that happened about 10 years ago now, maybe more – Uh, Remind people what dig was dig.com used to be a, uh, a social news reader that had a community that would basically submit links and then not quite vote them to the top, but they would rise to the top and, and you could organize links that way. And then Reddit came around with its upvote. And
1: wasn't part of the idea of the dig is you just went there, they gave you random stuff? Or? No, that was Stumble Upon. Stumble upon which I loved, I loved dearly.
2: I loved Stumble Upon. Too. And then and so Dig was this really popular newsreader and had a great community. And they started to mess with the way it operated. It, they started to mess with the features of it. And around the same time, a competitor, Reddit appeared, and it's a very similar story, actually, to MySpace and Facebook. You had this thing that everyone was using. It starts to mess with its core user base and its core features, and people leave. When you ask the question, like, is it a social company versus a software and services company? I think what it is is it's all about the tools you provide your users. If they don't like those tools, they'll leave. And you can see this, I think, a little bit with the desperation around the Elon Musk stands, like his fan army, because they really want to keep you there. They really want to keep you on Twitter so they can yell at you about how great their idol is, and that's the thing that I'm sort of waiting for. The, the The thing that really worries me is that Elon Musk will figure out a way to keep us there, and I don't know if it'll be through a payment processor or some kind of deal he makes with a telecom company or I don't know, but I'm terrified that this that he that he succeeds.
1: I don't think he's going to force us to stay there. But 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 that leads me to this question: since you are a, a historian of social networks. Call you that for this minute. Thank you. What happens when a social media company sort of reaches its peak and then starts to decline? Is it that everyone gets up one day en masse and goes to the next thing? Do they stick around but they use it less frequently? How does a how does a social network decline?
2: So there's a couple of good examples. Uh, obviously, the MySpace one is that Facebook launches a service that uh, initially asks for a college. Email, so they start to get college-educated users to leave, and then they expand outward and quickly, and they're more stable than Facebook after uh, Rupert Murdoch buys it and it starts to fall. And,
1: apart. And right. So I was on MySpace, not very much, and then eventually I was on Facebook. So why do people? But why does a user go from MySpace to Facebook?
2: I mean, I can tell you, it was a better experience. Uh, MySpace was f- filling up with spam. Uh, my comment section were full of people like selling weed and stuff. It was all like juggalos. It was just. A, it was kind of a mess. Sounds like New York. 2022. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but then you, you can look at other ones. So very famously, a bunch of users got really mad on the message board, something awful over some moderation decisions around adult content. Let's put it politely. And they left and started 4chan, where they could go and do those things that were banned on the other site. Uh, Vine was a totally different one, where the largest stars at Vine essentially unionized and said, you know, you'll pay us to make content for your website or we'll leave. Twitter said no. And they left and they went to other places and eventually laid the groundwork for what TikTok became and YouTube and other places. And, you know, with Dig, it was more of a uh, we can't function as the community we want to be anymore. And they left. There's all these sites that die, right? But then there's other sites that sort of exist as a zombie. So Tumblr, my love, my dear love, has functioned essentially as a slow walking corpse for a while. There's spikes in activity, but after a porn ban that was very controversial, a lot of people left. Pinterest is another weird one where it was like huge, then it kind of got quiet. And then the company just started quietly building tools for their core audience. And they've essentially eaten... All of Google image search results at this point. If you've Googled anything last like year, it's all Pinterest links.
1: Yeah, it's very frustrating. You think Google would solve that? You think they would care. Doesn't seem good for Google, but that's a different question. So leads me to lots of people on Twitter I'm very worried about Twitter, talking about can this be replaced? Can we go somewhere else? So first of all, do you think that we can replicate another Twitter somewhere?
2: So, maybe my theory for a long time on why newsletters got really popular was that people were sick of Facebook organizing their content algorithmically. So they just went to email because there was no real sorting. And it was there. It was easy. And I think that the guiding principle of the internet is like people just sort of gravitate towards what's easiest. So when everyone's like, welcome to the Mastodon Fediverse. I
1: was going to get to Mastodon in a second.
2: You got to pick an instance and then that instance might ban you or read your DMs or kick you out because you're friends with this other instance, all this other stuff. I don't think it's going to happen.
1: My 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 assessment of, of Mastodon, of trying to use it for a week was, oh, this is like what trying to buy a Bored Ape was. Like you can do it yeah. if you want to and you're... Oriented toward that, and you have a tech ish background, but for a normal person, converting your, your cash into ETH and then how are you getting you MetaMask? Like it's just not a non starter
2: to yeah, me. Yeah, I don't see it. Uh, I mean, I should say I have a lot of readers that are furries in particular that really like Mastodon. And if they're listening, I want to say, I hear you. I'm listening. I'm learning. But it's also I just don't have the time to learn Mastodon. I think what will probably happen is we'll see a dispersal for a while. So I think a lot of journalists will probably move to Instagram because it's like it's there. It's easy. Instagram stories.
1: You You can type up stuff. Put it. You can looks link. looks like a thing you know how to use. Yeah. You already use it.
2: I don't see Facebook succeeding with this, but maybe maybe like someone starts a Facebook group that gets really popular. I think Substack could do quite well here for a certain kind of content. But I think that the other thing is that what makes Substack successful will apply to any single blogger. So, I mean, what I love is if you want a great example of the decentralization of the internet right now, Mike Masnick, the tech Dirt writer, is going viral like every week now. And that to me is like blogging's back. He figured it out. He's
1: one of the original yeah. bloggers. He's been typing on that same I love it. blog domain forever. I mean, I paid attention to him a long time ago. He's writing about you know DMCA right. and music copyright, and that was stuff I was paying attention to. I was kind of shocked to
2: find that he resuscitated himself. It's great. It's it's like Blink One Eight Two getting Tom DeLong back. It's fantastic. Um, no, and I, I think you're going to just see more people starting little pop up stuff.
1: But those are all ways for individual writers who want to get their stuff out to a community to reach it. So that's one thing. But if, if you're just a regular because again, the rule of social media is very few people are making stuff. Most people are consuming it. Right. The idea of like skimming through an app and seeing something funny or interesting or outrageous and then putting it back, which is the way most people use most of this stuff. Does that get replicated or it just goes away and people just move on? They've already moved on to TikTok and Be Real or whatever.
2: That's the sad thing is I think – One of the wonders of Twitter was that – and also why it was a a hellhole is because the friction of sort of being a consumer versus being a creator was so thin. It was like so easy to switch. And I think we're probably just going to be in this position, which we've kind of been in since the pandemic, where everyone has, you know, three different group chats and they're on a couple discords and they're, you know, in an email list server or whatever. And they're just sort of hanging out and sharing links there. And they're doing the Twitter thing, but they're doing it there. And we also have a wave of these new apps that are either – hyper, hyper, hyper local, like be real, which is basically just the people in your phone book on your phone, or TikTok, which is Netflix, but in bite sized chunks. You don't really there's not a real incentive to make stuff on TikTok.
1: They it's 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 easy to do it, right? They would yes. like you to. Very there's fun. that button. Yeah. Like the way uh Evan Spiegel used to talk about snap sort of we want you to create stuff from the get go. But I think exactly I think you're exactly right. It's it's a video player. And they're giving it to you in one or three or maybe 10 minute chunks. Yeah,
2: I did a whole rant on TikTok the other day and I finished and I was like, I want to do that again. And then I was like, that's not good. That's not a good feeling because <laughs> I will. And I, I, I could very easily see myself uh, porting over my Twitter addiction into something else that's more bad for me. So hopefully I can stay away. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Um, I want to ask you about TikTok and Tumblr, but let's talk about Be Real. On my radar for about a year and I would go to my nieces and nephews and be the creepy uncle and say, you guys on Be Real yet? I heard it's the hot new thing with the kids and they would just give me this blank look like, "What? Do you, please stop, go away. But it seems like in the last couple months it tipped over, at least like it's the kind of thing where SNL can parody it and assume that a lot of the audience uses it. Do you believe this is a thing that sticks around and if so, why?
2: I think there's a good chance that Be Real eats away a lot of the lingering uh, Snapchat users. I see it more in that direction. I don't see like, I don't see Be Real doing a pivot and becoming, you know, the next big national social network.
1: What is the itch that it scratches for the people who like it and why do you think it has a ceiling on it?
2: So, yeah, I did a story a couple of months ago about Be Real and I interviewed a bunch of like college age Be Real users and they were all saying that they've never looked at the explore. So there's two tabs in the app. One for people you follow and one for just random people. And the
1: idea is you're taking a picture of something, but it's also taking a picture of you. So you get this double image. You can see everyone now is replicating it on TikTok right. and on Facebook. It's
2: cool. I mean, it is cool. It's supposed to be candid. It's supposed to be fun. There's a timer. And those features are very easily replicated. I th- And I think they're kind of fatty. I actually think there's a like a very good chance like, Be Real doesn't even use it much longer. But I do think Be Real has figured out something very clever, which is that Americans in particular – don't have uh, an easy way to kind of send each other – like semi-private messages over uh, across different kinds of phones, right? We don't use WhatsApp. We're not a WhatsApp country. And so Be Real for me – We're an
1: iMessage country, yeah. and then but everyone's got the one Android friend.
2: Exactly. And so I think a, a way to uh, defeat Android classism is Be Real. And I, I think there's a version where Be Real just becomes uh, – basically like a private Instagram for people under a certain age. And then the question will be is like, can they keep grabbing younger people? Because I, I think that there's also a world where they end up like Snapchat, where there's just this, um, I interviewed the, the writer, Charlie Warzel a couple months ago, and he described it as the Snapchat micro generation. And I thought that was like a really fun way of thinking about like the random cohort of like college students that get stuck in a weird app and they just live there mm-hmm. until it dies. Do
1: you have any sense why, why Snapchat has, has seemingly, and again, it's because my and my kids are in the demo, but like my understanding is, for if you're a 12, 14 year old kid, like Snapchat is the main way you're communicating with each other. It's how you text, etc. Um, was that intentional on Snapchat's part? I can't imagine Evan's People's like, "What I'm gonna do is, is is decline in popularity, and then I'm gonna go find another cohort of people."
2: I'm really rooting for Snapchat. I like. I love. I love internet third places, uh, and I think the like Snapchat really offers this really interesting thing that we in America particularly don't have because we don't have WhatsApp. And so for teenagers, if they don't want to be with, oh my God, this is going to sound so horrible. If they don't want to be with their parents on Instagram and their grandparents on Facebook, they want to be It's, it's just else. their
1: own space. So yeah. it could have been anything. It just happens to be Snap.
2: And I think Snapchat has a couple of things that Gen Z and younger tend to like. They like privacy. They like ephemerality. They like spontaneity. But they also like fun filters and AR and like a TikTok video feed that Snapchat has now. I'm rooting for Snapchat. They're not doing well right now, but nobody is. But I I think Snapchat could be, you know, in line with TikTok in a couple of years. But that's my fan theory.
1: Why do you care about Tumblr? You talked about it being a zombie app. And it's interesting because that's what my perception was. But I've been reading you for a while. And you spend a lot of time talking about what's happening on Tumblr. What's interesting to you about what's going on at Tumblr?
2: I think Tumblr in many ways, is a really good cultural resource for a certain kind of internet. So on the internet, there are fandoms, and a lot of these fandoms operate now on Twitter or Reddit, but the birthplace of of internet fandom, as we understand it, I consider Tumblr, Tumblr has some unique features that allow it to be very good at organizing fandom content. So, uh, you know, a typical Tumblr post, when you reblog it, you can add stuff to it, so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. It's almost like a, a message board thread that just travels around the internet, and so you can you can be really collaborative there. And so the the memes there are really funny. And they're really self-referential, which I appreciate. But I also think that a lot of people who have been there, based anecdotally on the people I follow and the people they follow, they've been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think... We have this habit of forgetting about the corners of the internet where people have just been there for 15 years.
1: So I get like going to a restaurant that was hot and no one talks about it anymore, but you go there. It turns out there's kind of an interesting scene. The locals are still there. They used to be Tex-Mex, but really now it's just a bar or whatever it is. Yeah. So I get the fun of that, but what you're not saying is like, oh, this is like a version of Twitter where there's a small community there, but they have downstream effects. This is just its own
2: insular thing. I don't think it's downstream. So I personally use Tumblr as a writer because it's extremely curatorial. So if I follow, you know, I think I follow like two or 3000 blogs there. And a lot of those blogs are people who are organizing other parts of the internet. So that for me, that's super useful. I can open up my Tumblr feed and within like five minutes, kind of get a good sense of, you know, some funny tweets, some good TikToks. And it's not just like Twitter referencing itself. It's pulling from different parts.
1: I haven't spent a ton of time on TikTok. The thing that anyone in tech and media knows to say is that TikTok is super successful because they have this algorithm which is super well-tuned because if they know a little bit, they say because it has all these data sources and that's why their stuff is way better. And And it's even, again, to remember my kids believe this to be the case about YouTube shorts or reels, which are mostly just TikToks. I have a counter theory, which is it's amazingly popular because it's showing you short videos. And it's really easy to consume as many as you want. I realize the two weren't necessarily opposite, but what do you think is more important—the the algorithm and and whatever data they're using to serve you something—versus the fact that you can just open it and watch a video and then go as long as
2: you want? I think I think the algorithm is important just because it's probably the best I've seen, and and I say best meaning that like it's really aggressive. So it's co- you know you look at a, a golden retriever video for an extra five seconds, and all of a sudden your for you page is just golden retrievers. I also which th- doesn't seem great, by the way. Like even from TikTok's <laughs>
1: perspective, it's like, well, you obviously don't they don't endless... only want to watch dogs, right? They also want to watch scantily clad people or whatever it is.
2: Yeah, I mean that's where I think its second strategy comes into play that's really useful, which is that it sort of shirked the idea of Facebook – which so if you ever if you were ever a content creator or someone writing in digital media during the Facebook era it was all about broad mass appeal to go as viral as possible TikTok Tends to emphasize the opposite, which is, you know, you find – I found this guy the other day who takes apart leather handbags and he explains like why it's good leather or bad leather. And I watched him for like an hour. I found another guy who just takes random food that people suggest and puts it in liquor for a week and then does a shot with it. Another guy who does um, Great Depression era baking recipes. It's hyper, hyper niche. And I think that's why TikTok's algorithm is so effective is because it's not emphasizing – Anymore, It used to be all about like dancing and really broad appeal stuff. Now it seems to be switching and wanting you to be as niche and bizarre as possible, which is so compelling.
1: (laughs) I I remember reading Corey Sika, um, who used to work with me and then went to the Times and now is back at Fox Media, saying something to the effect of, you know, it seems like actually TikTok is getting broader and it's trying to it's trying to get people to all sort of watch the same thing after all. Do do you, so you, you, you think, no, it's, 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 it's success is really pushing you down in a narrower and narrower.
2: No, no. I think it, so, so it is also, so what's really interesting is TikTok is investing a lot in search. For the first time ever, I was able to describe a video into the search bar and it, I found it, which is outrageous to me, but that content that is sort of becoming this TikTok monoculture tends to be hyper-specific. So I'm waiting to see. I'm waiting to see if TikTok's algorithm starts to promote. You know that you remember like in 2016, where like all of the top YouTubers were basically in a reality show together across their individual videos, and they're all just fighting all the time. All the drama channels doing collabs, yeah, all that stuff. I'm wondering if if creators will figure out how to do that on TikTok. But for right now, the largest I see,
1: I see little bits of it.
2: Yeah, you see like yeah. interpersonal drama on TikTok. Not
1: the drama part, but okay. like, oh, I'm a I do TikTok recipes and so does this guy and he's more popular than me and he's on my show today. Isn't that great?
2: That's smart. And I, I and I, I you know, on their side, I understand when they're doing it. But I do think right now we are entering a moment where you you and I might actually see the same video on TikTok, but chances are the video that we're seeing is like some guy I mean, I watched a guy the other day in rural China cook uh, an entire ostrich leg. Like He fried it and it was so big. And I obviously I had to tell everybody, you know, and like I think that experience is still part of TikTok's DNA. I don't know how long it'll last, but
1: let me ask you about, uh, how you got into this. Um, you've been doing this newsletter, Garbage Day. Mm-hmm. It's free, but there's also a subscription. You should subscribe. Thank you. Before that, you were at BuzzFeed. Mm-hmm. You started, and you were there for a long time. You started off doing what at BuzzFeed?
2: Uh, so I was a content moderator. Uh, so I read comments all day, a lot of them. Uh, before that, I, I wrote for Corey Sika at the All a little bit. I worked at Vice a little bit. Then I was at BuzzFeed for eight years, and my first job for about a year was just reading comments, which so, was a lot. So th- so
1: when when did you get to BuzzFeed? 2012.
2: Okay. So this is the ascent of
1: BuzzFeed. When BuzzFeed yeah. is like getting – it's I remember someone in this era has told me the best job in sales right now is, is working at BuzzFeed because you just pick up the phone. You don't have to call anyone. People want to – it's a hot site. So
2: yeah. I remember – like. The day I think it was the Daily Beast came in to interview us about live gifting the election, you know, like one a, a sentence that doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, yeah, and it was the peak of viral content. It was the peak of sort of, and I remember, the, I, I remember the day when StumbleUpon stopped being our largest uh, source of traffic and Facebook became it, and like t- sort of trying to map out how you make content for Facebook users, and that was that pretty much was about a five-year project until it started to vanish
1: right that was the main job Mm -hmm. at Buzzfeed and a lot of other publishers for sure and and buzzfeed i think was the best at
2: it yeah i I think we were pretty pretty good at it we had a lot of young people who went on to do other stuff with that kind of mindset uh and i think it it didn't feel growth hacky at the time it felt like we were mapping out new ways of publishing and it felt very exciting for a long time
1: is there stuff there that's still sort of that you learned and figured out then that you're still taking with you today. And is there stuff you had to unlearn? Cause it turns out that was the wrong idea.
2: Yeah, both. So Buzzfeed in the very early days, you would basically publish and you had an editor maybe, but they were also publishing and it was sort of just like a, like a free for all. And very often. Logging. Yeah. And very often you would have like two, like I remember like I didn't agree with someone and what they wrote. So I wrote the opposite and we put them up at the same time and see, see who got more comments. And it was like a really fun environment to like learn how to use the internet to express yourself and learn how to interact with different audiences and figure out where they're coming from and why. And then the other thing that I had to, I had to unlearn and and garbage day was a fantastic education in this was that as Facebook became a larger source of traffic, we became very alienated to our audience. I I mean, what does that mean? So I think most newsrooms have some version of this where you say like, never read the comments. Mm -hmm. Don't go to the comments because it's a trash fire, you know, and if you think about that, that's kind of crazy to say, oh, like the the reaction to what I've put on the internet the is so- The people who
1: are responding to you, yeah. you should ignore.
2: Exactly. And what was really nice uh, about Garbage in the very beginning was that I would email something out into the ether and I would get messages back. And I, I used to spend a, every Sunday answering as many people as I could, uh, my- Comments now, as I've gotten larger, have started to they're they're now fighting with each other, which is an interesting little social experiment. Right,
1: because the thing about them being a trash fire is it is true, right? If you get to any size, yeah, um, people will come and crap over the thing you made.
2: But I also think like attracting readers on Facebook began to feel more like a trick and less like genuine connection, and I think maybe that's to do with scale, but I think it's also about. The corrupting effects of publishing to an algorithm or something.
1: You left BuzzFeed in 2020, and this was a public departure. Why did you leave?
2: There was a, a new uh, editorial team in charge. They did not agree with how I had written uh, some stories during lockdown. We fought about it. I did not agree with what they thought was improper sourcing. They
1: publicly accused you of plagiarism.
2: Which hilariously they yeah yeah I mean yes they did. Uh, they didn't use the word so much. They just put up a bunch of stories and said they had changed them uh, and let the internet kind of decide what they wanted. And it was, it was, yeah, it was awful. I spent a long time before they went public sort of saying, you know, I was there to help write the style guide that you're accusing me of violating. I'm happy to (laughs) take classes or, or work with you on how you want to do this. It didn't pan out, uh,
1: so what the, their, their their public discussion was like, these were misproperly attributed, et cetera. And, and yeah. And assume, so you tell me in your words what you thought you were doing.
2: So all of the instances, I mean, they're public. You can look at them with the Wayback Machine. I had linked to material and they believed that the material I had linked to was too similar to how I had written it. Um, and I approached this as, you know, somebody had been at the company for almost a decade being like, you know. How do we fix this together? And it it fell apart uh, in talks. And you know, I still have friends at the company now. It's a very different company than it used to be. I still like it. It's like a hard thing to sort of like see this place you kind of grew up at uh, not only change so drastically, doesn't feel like that anymore, but also literally publicly throw you out. So yeah, it was a it was a tough tough time.
1: Okay, I wanted to make sure we discussed it before yeah. I let you go. Uh, and I, I we'll we'll end on a different note instead of ending on on, on that. <laughs> What is Nyquil chicken? Ah, uh, yeah. Why did the FDA that's why they warn really fired me.
2: That's why that's why Buster really fired me. Is uh, making Nyquil like making chicken. Why the did office? the FDA
1: yeah. warn everyone in America about the dangers of Nyquil chicken? And what does that story tell us?
2: Yeah. Uh, so Nyquil chicken started on 4chan in like 2017, I believe, which feels like way longer ago. A guy made what he called sleepy time chicken, which is where he boiled chicken in Nyquil and whiskey, and then he covered it in more Nyquil. And uh, the
1: point – it's on 4chan. So it's yeah. kind of – anything on 4chan is meant to be a joke for it's the
2: most to part. To a right? degree. It's like until they get serious, let's yeah. assume it's a joke. And uh, it was it was sort of this thing that this guy did for their <laughs> – they have a cooking board uh, called CK. And so you share bad recipes there. Stunt, stunt recipes. Yeah. And uh, it kind of kicked around the internet as sort of this uh, – I don't know, like urban legend and one interesting side effect of tiktok kind of rising in popularity is that it seems to be absorbing older parts of the internet and like recycling memes and michael chicken for whatever reason got stuck inside the algorithm on tiktok this uh, i found two accounts that claim they had made it and then do so you
1: think they got the it's, whether they got went to fortune the meme got yeah, into their head around. yeah and then they're around. like well, i'm going to make
2: this because one guy had done it on on Twitter before that. And so it's it's sort of been leapfrogging around the internet. And then one like weird side effect of of TikTok is that people tend to um they tend to comment. Uh, on other people's content so you you might think that something is absolutely gigantic but actually all these people were commenting on two videos but the fda saw the discourse so so
1: on tiktok nyquil chicken becomes a thing because there's two videos and then everyone else is talking about those videos tiktok is built to make you to allow you to make commentary videos about someone else's
2: stuff it was trending and i guess the fda (laughs) had somebody be like hey uh the people are making Nyquil chicken on this app, and I guess I didn't realize this. If you boil Nyquil, it's pretty dangerous because uh, there's like vapors, uh-huh. uh, and so they had to issue a statement, which then got picked up by every local news station. You know, every the FDA is saying know. this horrible
1: thing is happening on the internet, and you should warn your kids about it.
2: And so it's like really tough that uh, it's a tough place to be. I think for the for the FDA because it's like do you do you address it and make it bigger? Or do you not address it?
1: I mean, this feels like every Internet hoax I've seen since the Internet came around, which is if you, you know, if you had any sense of how a chain email worked or anything else, you just this thing is not true. There's not a gang gathering at the mall. But if enough people are sending the information out that eventually the police have to respond to it, they mean well, they freak everyone out and it spirals out. So it just seems like this is the same story just – decades after we should have learned. the, Is there a way for anyone to learn the lesson to sort of not amplify things that are objectively not true and not to scare people who don't know better?
2: Yeah, I think the only, I mean, the only real way is to just sort of work in terms of scale, right? So it's a lot to ask the FDA to be like, go find how many people are actually doing this.
1: Shouldn't be though, right? They could just look and say there's two videos. You you were able to do it.
2: I, I mean, hey, FDA, if you need any help, uh, let me know. Uh, yeah, I think... I think though that's the way to do it. Is you sort of have to walk people through this and say, "Okay, this is the inciting incident. And this is how big it was, and this is the the second layer where people are talking about it, and this is how uh, how serious you should take it." And I think a lot of that uh, messaging gets lost when, uh, especially, a federal agency tries to get involved because they're they're just thinking like, "All right, we got to we got to stop this. People are making Nyquil chicken in their houses." So.
1: Ryan Broderick, uh, Garbage Day writer by day, and at night he is available for FDA or any other agency consulting.
2: Yeah, happy to help. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming, Ryan. This is great. Thank you very much.